Well, good afternoon, Rua Church. I'm Alexander, and uh, I'm one of the pastors here. And we are going to be in Luke chapter 9 this evening. And I want to invite you to turn there with me, Luke chapter 9. And once you have found uh, Luke chapter 9, we'll be reading out of verse 10. Uh, I would invite you to stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And, had them, and each had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets full of broken pieces. This is the word of the Lord. Be you guys be seated. Well, as we continue our exposition of Luke's gospel, we come now to uh, chapter 9, beginning in verse 10, and we have the, this uh, famous gospel account. In fact, uh, if you grew up in church, this is a story you've heard, no doubt, countless times, and one of the reasons that you've probably heard it so much and you're so familiar with these events is because aside from the miracle of the resurrection, these events are the only ones that are recorded in all four of the Gospels. This miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is the only event besides the resurrection recorded in all four of the Gospels. Why then is this included? Why does Luke find it significant for us to know? Um, and he, I think, drives home that message by including certain details that we need to pay attention to and also by omitting certain details that are not found in some of the other accounts of these events. But I think what Luke is teaching us is he's teaching us that Jesus is the abundant one. Jesus is the abundant one. And this uh, becomes clear when you find the overall thrust of what Luke is arguing for in these uh, texts. And also as uh, you compare what Luke decides to include uh, as opposed to what some of the other gospel writers uh, choose to include in their uh, accounts of these events. So one of the things we need to remind ourselves of, at least uh, as, we, as we come now to these events, is that this verse, verse 10 and following to verse 17, they take place in a certain context. And Luke's argument thus far has been this kind of looming question for the last couple of uh, sections that we've been looking at is who then is this? This is the question that is being asked or posited by Luke. And he's, he's taking us and zooming us into different people and how they're attempting to answer that question. So first, uh, we're told of the disciples who wrestle with this question and say, then who then is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? And then we come later on to the, the people who we encountered last week 
and they're gossiping about who Jesus is, and they're saying, well, maybe he is a prophet, uh, maybe he is Elijah, maybe he is uh, one of the other prophets from of old, Moses or Isaiah. Uh, who is this? Maybe he's John the Baptist reincarnate. And the, the question then looms, who is this? Who is this Jesus? And here, without really uh, a direct answer to that question, but kind of sandwiching this event in between the others, Luke is telling us at least one kind of take on who Jesus is. And I think he's telling us the answer, at least in his mind, to this question. Jesus is the abundant God. So if you look with me then at verse 10, we'll find the thrust of this text. And the verse 10 picks up where the last section left off. The disciples are returning. It says, on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. Now that references the things that had happened that we read about last week. The disciples going out healing and teaching and preaching of the kingdom of God. Remember, Christ put his authority and his power in them and invested it in them so they could with authority and power go forth and preach that same message. And when he hears about all that they have done, all of the mission that has unfolded, no doubt some time has elapsed between the carrying on of those events and them returning. He takes them and essentially brings them about to to rest. It says that he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Now, this is not likely referencing a a day of Sabbath rest, which they would have no doubt observed as Jewish men. Uh, The other uh, thing that we could surmise is that he's taking them for a normal periodic rest that they would have done. It seems that this rest was a necessary component of the, of the heavy ministry that they had all just partaken in. That uh, doing these miracles, preaching the gospel was a draining and intensive venture. And so Jesus uh, takes his disciples and retreats with them out to a place where they can probably recuperate and spend some time in prayer and in additional teaching. And it seems that that is the thrust. And we, we can surmise this because uh, elsewhere in Luke's gospel and in the other gospels, we only see Jesus retreating uh, to silence or to solitude when a big momentous thing is going to occur or when he's recovering from having spent all day healing or preaching and the like. So we see this a couple of times in Luke's gospel where Jesus uh, retreats and goes on his own for silence and for prayer and for time alone, time privately with the Father. And here you see him now taking his disciples in with him to that kind of a retreat. No doubt because they've now partaken in that same kind of intensive ministry that he has given them authority to partake in. So nonetheless, the story is set up for us as uh, they're trying to escape, to go privately to a place, essentially to not engage in ministry. So they're going to go to a town called Bethsaida. But what happens uh, that Luke tells us about in verse 11 is the crowds who are, uh, have been ministered to and have been following Jesus around, they figure out where the disciples are going and they go there to where Jesus and the disciples are. It says when the crowds learned of it, they followed him, and the response of Jesus in this, uh, in this event is, is striking. He doesn't send them away. He doesn't retreat on a boat. In this instance, he actually welcomes them. And then he begins preaching or speaking to them of the kingdom of God. And then he even engages in additional healing and miraculous encounters with them. Now, this is an interesting thing because what Jesus' whole intent was with the retreat was to, let's say, recover uh, for his disciples to get away, to escape. Uh, and now he finds himself once again in the thick of ministry, preaching and healing, doing the very things that they're probably taking a break from or taking a recuperation journey from. Now, it's unclear, at least in Luke's telling of these things, whether Jesus and the disciples actually got away for, let's say, a short period of time before the crowds find them, or if it's an immediate find that the crowds do. 
But nevertheless, it sets up a, a scenario where Jesus is, is given a choice, whether he is going to preach and teach the crowds or whether he's going to retreat once again with his disciples for additional uh, time to, to themselves, time in prayer and meditation. And it seems to be the case that the heart of Jesus is, is put once again on display for us as we've seen his heart go out to the, the woman in need of healing and his heart go out to Jairus' daughter and his heart go out to the demoniac. Uh, all of these people who desperately need him here, his heart goes out to the crowd and he decides to have compassion on them and to preach to them and to heal them. Even though his intention with going to Bethsaida was, was not to preach and to heal, but rather for his disciples to recover. It's amazing. It shows us the, the heart of Jesus as he, as he is ministering to these people. They have a great need on this earth to know about him. And he's resolved, even if it comes at, at, at personal cost and personal sacrifice, to go and to make sure that they hear of the kingdom and they are healed and they, they see all of his works on display. It shows us of his heart. Now what's interesting is the disciples seem much more excited or much more ready to send the crowds away. So at the end of the first day, when, uh, when this teaching and this healing has been going on for some time, verse 12 tells us, now as the day begins to wear away, you know, evening is dawning, the, they're living in a town, uh, place before artificial light, so you can, you can see the darkness setting in, and the day is going away, and the disciples are picking up on this. All the natural world is telling them the day is going away, it's time for uh, getting ready for the evening, getting a meal made, and going to bed and, and resting. And the disciples have to come to Jesus and essentially advise him to send the crowds away uh, because they need to find lodging and food. And uh, likely implicit in this is, and also so do we, because we are out here in a desolate place. So the day begins to wear and the 12 come to Jesus and they say, send away the crowd to go into the surrounding villages and towns to go find lodging and to get food. For we are here in a desolate place. This is their advice to Jesus. Now, the first, uh, first thing that is interesting is Jesus is also likely aware of the fact that the day is waning, right? The disciples are not privy to special information in this case. Uh, Jesus can see that the sun is setting or that the day is going dim. So he's observing the same events. He's, he's seeing all the same things. The disciples say, this is time to send the crowds away. Uh, Jesus, uh, as you'll see in a moment, does not agree with the assessment of the disciples. He thinks that it's more necessary for the crowds to stay and to hear and to observe the healing. So they're seeing the same things. The disciples think, let's send them away. And then the other thing that's interesting is the disciples, let's say, ground their reasoning in two things. One is they say that they need to find food and lodging. Uh, and the other thing is because right now, the place that we're in is not a place where they could find food and lodging. We're in a desolate place. Now, remember, Jesus is the one who took them out to this place to uh, retreat privately. So he knows where they're at. He knows they're in a desolate place. The disciples are telling him things that he would also be aware of. But they're thinking that given all of what's happening, given the unfolding of these events, Jesus, we need to send them away because there's not food enough for us here. There's not food enough for them here. Send them away back to their places to stay, to lodge, to get food. And, you know, maybe we can have a break as well and rest and recover. And you have the heart of Jesus then on display when in verse 13 he responds to the disciples and he says, you give them something to eat. Now, given what we've just learned in verse 12, that response is rather strange because the disciples have just told Jesus there's no food, there's no food around here because we're in a desolate place. And then Jesus responds to their, let's say, observation of need by saying, you go and give them something to eat. 
Many of the uh, other gospels wrestle with this question. So, sometimes uh, it's Philip responding and saying, uh, Lord, even if we had, you know, so much money, you know, uh, almost a year's worth of wages, we would not be able to buy enough food for all these people. Some of the gospels uh, record here as, uh, as Luke does, that all we have here is fish and some bread. And unless we go out and buy food for these people, there's not going to be enough food for them to eat. Now, this statement from the disciples is a slightly, let's say, sarcastic statement. Because in this day and age, people can't just go to the grocery store, buy something, and immediately warm it up and then eat it right away. The food that is bought needs to then be prepared, and then it needs to be served, and then it needs to be consumed within a short period of time, and then it needs to be, let's say, cleaned up and, and put away. They don't have uh, access to ready-to-make meals and, and instant uh, one-minute rice or things like this. If they're going to go buy food, they also then need to travel to buy food, buy the food, travel back with essentially the ingredients, not really meals, if you like. Then they need to go make the food for, uh, in, in this case, 5,000 men, which doesn't even count the, the families and the spouses of these individuals. And then they need to serve this food, and then they likely need to stay for the meal and clean up afterwards. So it's a sarcastic statement for the disciples to say, well, unless we go and buy the food, and we could do that, they're kind of posing it as a as a strange outcome because, of course, Jesus isn't going to go tell them to do that. He'll just tell them to send the crowds away. You know, other than that, other than the going out and the buying of food, Jesus, this is what we have. We have five loaves and two fish. And the implicit sense there is we have not enough food here to go around to the 5,000. We have not enough food here to go and feed this multitude of people that has followed us out. It is better then for you to send them away. Now, at this point in time, it's worth noting that the whole tone of the text, the whole tone of what Luke is telling us, is that the disciples are aware of a problem, which is an insufficient quantity of food, and the crowds are growing hungry and the disciples are growing hungry, so there's a need for food, and this need needs to somehow be met. This is the, the tone or the thrust of what Luke is telling us. And what follows in verse 14, 15, 16, and 17 is Jesus meeting these various needs with another miracle, another supernatural event where he blesses the bread, multiplies it, and then he has enough left over afterwards for 12 basketfuls of food to be gathered. Now, the reason I say this is because one of the ways that uh, we live in the modern world, one of the things that has affected us so greatly is when we read the gospel accounts, we read of the supernatural, and we are immediately thrown off by it. We immediately look for other kinds of explanations. And as, as it is the case in the resurrection, where we look for other means of explaining how Jesus could have risen up from the grave, aside from actually dying and coming back to life, we look for other explanations. This miracle, which occurs in all four Gospels, is probably the second most assaulted miracle of Jesus, where there's a variety of explanations that try to fit the bill for what actually took place when Jesus broke the bread and then somehow fed 5,000 men, not including, again, the women and children, which would put the number closer to 10,000 individuals fed and served. So how then did Jesus pull this off? Well, there's a number of explanations. Uh, one of my favorites, though, is one that uh, caught a great uh, number of people's uh, eye and interest. It is the, the idea that rather than being a miracle of abundance, where Jesus breaks bread and multiplies it into an infinite sum, uh, what instead happens is Jesus actually convinces the people to share the food that they have with one another. And the way this takes place is, well, you know in some of the other gospel accounts that 
The, the loaves and the fish are presented by a young boy. He, this is essentially his food that he has brought. And what happens is Jesus gets the young boy to share the food with him. He get, the young boy offers up his meal. And when Jesus prays and blesses the food and then there's enough to go around, what's really happening is everyone else who's in the crowd has brought food for themselves, really enough for them and their family. And this is what uh, some would call an ethical miracle, where Jesus convinces them to share food among themselves so that everyone uh, can eat and be fed and full. And then what's left over afterwards, turns out we actually had enough food because there's actually 12 basketfuls ready to be gathered. And people are learning to share with one another by the example of the young boy. Now, this is uh, quite an explanation. And the only problem with all of what I've just said is that the text does not say that any of that took place. The text says that there's no food except for five loaves and two fish. The text does not say that the only food willing to be shared is the five loaves and the two fish. So all of that explanation, while good in theory and maybe nice, is not what is going on here. What is happening is crowds have gone out. They're hungry. There's no food to go around except for five loaves and two fish. And Jesus needs to either by miracle or by, let's say, pragmatism, deal with the problem. Either he needs to send them back to where they came from to find lodging and food, or he needs to provide the food for them. So this is not uh, what some would have called an ethical miracle. I think this is indeed an abundance miracle where Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fish and not in some meager portions where he simply divides them into little crumbs and pieces where everyone gets just a taste but rather he, he, he breaks it and provides it abundantly where everyone is able to eat. Everyone is able to eat until satisfaction, and there's even food left over. Now, if you're then asking, well, how does that make sense? How do those pieces fit together? How do you explain that? That is a good question. It is part of the supernatural abundance of Jesus. Now, if you, if you doubt, let's say, the possibility of that, I, I want to remind you of something Luke has already told us in his gospel. In Luke chapter 4, you don't need to turn there, but in Luke chapter 4, Satan tempts Jesus out in the wilderness, where Jesus has been in the wilderness for 40 days. Satan comes and tempts him. One of the first ways he tempts Jesus is he says, you're hungry, I know that you're hungry. You don't need to suffer like this. Turn this rock into bread and eat. Satan does not doubt the ability of Jesus to do any of that. Only modern Theologians doubt the ability of Jesus to turn bread from a meager source into an abundant source. Satan actually is convinced that the Son of Man can turn even a rock, an inanimate and inedible piece of uh, the countryside, he can turn that into an edible meal and consume it until he's full. So Satan has a, a kind of belief, a belief that Jesus can pull something like this off. Luke's already told us that, and then later he now tells us that now Jesus is faced with the miracle of multiplying the fish, multiplying the bread. And we could doubt that potentially, but I think the reality is that is a result of probably our own struggle with belief rather than Christ's uh, ability or as, as I like to say, as, as Luke's presentation. This is not a shortcoming in the gospel writers. It's, it's usually a shortcoming in our, our faith. Now then, what is the, let's say, significance of these events? Why is Luke telling us this? Why does he record this miracle when, you know, he tells us in the beginning of his gospel, the other gospel writers, the other uh, accounts of what Jesus did, we already have other accounts. Luke actually tells us in the intro that he, it seemed good to him also to write an account or a gospel of the various things that Jesus did and the things that have been fulfilled among us. 
So why does Luke include this unless he thinks that it's significant for us, right? He's not just trying to aimlessly retell things that other people have already spoken. He's, he's making a case. He's, he's launching an argument. He's uh, building an identity around who Jesus is. And so Luke chooses to include this. So why then does he include it? Well, the, I think the thrust of the text, the, the main thing to focus in on, is a detail that Luke chooses to include in this account. And it's in verse 17, when we see that they were all, they all ate, they were all satisfied, and what was left over was picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces. You not only have uh, the multiplication of the food, but as Luke tells us, you actually have the, uh, the needs of the people, their hunger met, and when it's all said and done, there's more left over than what they started with. There's more food collected after 5,000 men and their families eat than there was before the meal was prayed for and then multiplied. This is a, an interesting point. It takes essentially the problem of the text and turns it into kind of a twist surprise ending where it's not only that people ate and were satisfied, but there's actually more abundance afterwards than there was before the miracle took place. Now, then if you're, uh, let's say, wrestling with this text and you're saying, okay, then Luke, what is the point of telling us about Jesus's abundance? There's many uh, contexts that we could place that within. The first that uh, should immediately draw to the mind of a, a reader of the Old Testament would be the, uh, the case of the people of Israel as they're wandering in the wilderness and they're calling out to God essentially to provide food for them and God provides manna from heaven. And in that account, what happens is the manna from heaven is provided, but only sufficiently for the day that it is given. And then the next day they need to recollect more manna and more manna, but there's never uh, leftover manna. Remember, if they collect too much manna, this is actually a problem, it will spoil. So they're only allowed to collect enough for themselves to eat. Now then, we're told of Jesus who takes bread, multiplies it, and there's actually an abundance of bread left afterwards than there was before the miracle took place. This is something only God could do in the Old Testament. Now Jesus is told to be doing something similar in the New, and Jesus is elevating it by leaving an abundance of food over. It's actually very similar to God sending the quail to the people where there's so much quail that they're actually going to get sick of quail. It's kind of like that. So he's telling us about the abundance of Jesus, which is partially to identify his deity. This is a Jesus who is like his father, who is God. He is an abundant God. It's actually in his miraculous fingerprint. As he does miracles, you pick up on these things. Now there's other things that we need to observe uh, to, in order to pick up what Luke is telling us about here. The first is, let's say, the contrast between the response of the disciples and the response of Jesus. When the disciples are faced with the problem that Jesus is faced with, they're presenting a pragmatic solution to the problem. Not at all, uh, we would say, an out-of-bounds solution. It actually seems rather rational, right? The disciples are observing the crowd is hungry. They know there's no food around. So they say, you know what? We should send them away. Because if we send them away, they can at least eat their food. They can go. They can find lodging. They can find a place. This is the disciples pragmatically thinking about the situation that they're in. So we can't really, let's say, fault the disciples. I don't think too much. Because if you were in that same circumstance or situation, uh, no doubt, if you were a pragmatic person, you would do much the same. Present the idea that we should send the crowds away. 
So this is the, the, let's say, instinct or the impulse of the disciples to pragmatically solve the problem at hand. But notice then the response of Jesus where he actually tells the disciples, you feed them. You give them something to eat. And the disciples' response is essentially equivalent to we can't. We don't have enough. We have insufficient resources to feed the people. And after they respond that we are insufficient, not up to the task, is when Jesus performs the miracle. Now, when Luke includes those events, he includes them for a reason. The disciples present the problem, present a pragmatic solution. Jesus actually tells them to solve the problem, let's say, in the moment. They tell him, we can't, we don't have sufficient resources for it. And then is when Jesus provides them with the miraculous uh, multiplication of bread and multiplication of fish. So what is Luke telling us about? Well, he's partially telling us that the source of abundance is not uh, in the disciples' pragmatism. The source of abundance is found in, in Jesus. He is, let's say, the solution. And he's the solution once the disciples, let's say, confess or admit that they are uh, not up to the task, not up to the solution. And this is a striking New Testament story, but there are Old Testament texts that tell us something similar about God's work. If you remember the story of Gideon, where he is charged with driving out the people who oppress Israel, Gideon is supposed to sum up an army, and he sums up a rather poor, shabby army. And what God says to Gideon is striking. These are too many people here, Gideon. You need to whittle this army down until you have, you know, about 300 men left. And with this group, you can fight the opposition. Now, why does God tell Gideon that he can only fight the opposition once he has, let's say, an army of 300, which is more like a group than an army? Why is that the case? Well, God is going to teach Gideon through, let's say, a miraculous victory that this could not have happened in any other way aside from God's miraculous intervention. So that Gideon has no room for boasting. Israel has no room for boasting that they drove out the peoples. Only God can be credited with a victory because the army was so small, so meager, so insufficient that the only way the victory could have taken place was through God's miraculous intervention. Once Gideon gets to that place is when God actually moves and works and saves Israel. Similar here to when the disciples have to first, let's say, confess that they have nothing, have a meager portion insufficiently uh, to provide, that God moves and works and then provides the miracle where all the people are satisfied and eat until they are full. It's amazing that by the time you get to the book of Acts in the New Testament, that the disciples are facing similar kinds of circumstances. The gospel must go forward. The gospel must be preached. Rome is still in opposition. The Pharisees are still in opposition. But the gospel must go forward according to the commission. And the disciples, rather than pragmatically solving by systems and organizations and structures the problems that they face, they actually say we need to go with prayer and with the simple preaching of the word. And this is how we're going to get the message out. Which they're the same methods Paul describes as foolishness and folly according to the power of the world. The disciples essentially have to say there's a lot of problems facing the church, a lot of difficulty, 
But we're not going to necessarily engage in pragmatic problem solving. We're going to dedicate ourselves to prayer and to the preaching of the word. And this is how we're going to convince the smartest men of the Roman Empire and how we're going to convince Roman leaders and Jewish rabbis and Jewish people who have been in the system for their whole life. This is how we're going to convince them that what they believe is false and actually the gospel is the power of salvation. Not with wisdom or with clever articulation, but with the preaching of the gospel. A confession that apart from the movement of Christ, his miraculous work, this will not work. They're saying they are insufficient to persuade or to convince. Rather, they're going to seek Christ for the abundance, for the growth. And I think in this, there's much for the modern church to learn from. Because when we face those kinds of problems, problems of reaching those who are far from the church, problems with reaching an unchurched world where it has a secular worldview that hates God, we often engage in those problems very pragmatically. We think about uh, meeting the felt needs of those around us and then, then they'll listen to the gospel. Maybe we think about uh, putting together a good apologetic defense for what we believe so that it is inassailable from any other worldview's stance. And if we have an airtight argument, we can convince people with our intellectual capacity and with our arguments that this is the means by which they might be saved. When we think that we are, let's say, up to the task, no matter how big the task is, this is where the church falls short. And rather than, let's say, answering that problem with, ah, yes, we are sufficient, we have the resources, we need to only apply them correctly and pragmatically. Instead, we should do much like what the apostles do here and much like what they do in the early church where we say uh, with Paul, who is sufficient for these things? We need to go on our knees before the Lord and pray to him for an abundance and a blessing and a growth. When we do that, this is where the miracle of flourishing and multiplying actually takes place. And the confession of inadequacy is where Jesus Christ becomes the abundant one. Now, this is not some, let's say, strange twist that if we become, let's say, the most inadequate that we could possibly be is when we can boast in our inadequacy and this is where Christ flourishes. Some have even uh, written books to the effect that uh, as they are more and more unqualified for the preaching of the gospel, this is actually how God uses them for the advancement of the gospel. But we do not want to focus on ourselves and our inadequacies or ourselves and our shortcomings. Uh, the disciples have to get beyond that very quickly. They rather need to say uh, that Jesus is the solution. They're actually presenting this problem to Jesus for an answer. So we don't want to twist it and say, uh, well, we fall short, but it's okay because God likes to use people who fall short in order for his mission, so I'm well qualified. That's actually a, a sick and kind of twisted, sinful way of looking at the problem. We actually want to say with, with true humility, we fall short, and that's not good news because then Christ can use us, but we fall short. Now we need to get on our knees before a God who can use those who do fall short. We still need to, let's say, go to the Lord in prayer for the solution. Now there's many uh, testimonies to this kind of thing in the history of the church. And I think that there are so many ways in which we can consider uh, our shortcomings to be the very means by which we can seek the Lord in prayer for his abundance to flow through us. One of my favorite examples of this is uh, in the Reformation, where you have Martin Luther, 
who is opposing essentially all of Catholicism and all of, let's say, the papacy, as he calls it, the, not only the, the Catholic Church, but also the governments which are controlled by the Catholic Church. And when uh, Luther is asked, how is it that he is able to take on Rome? Is it his preaching? Is it his scholarly insights? Because he is, after all, a doctor of the church. He preaches and lectures at the university. Is it his intellect? Is it his rhetoric? What is, it the thi- what is the thing that Luther has that's allowing him to dethrone or dismantle the doctrine of the Catholic Church? Well, if you ask Luther that question, he, his answer is, I think, striking and one we can learn from. He does not boast in himself. He does not say it is because of his uh, perfect exegesis. He does not say it is because of his piety or his disqualification, but rather he says this. He says, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsterdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever did inflict such losses upon it. If you ask Luther who is sufficient for these things, Luther says, not I. But the word of Christ certainly is sufficient for these things. To multiply, to weaken, to convince, If you go to Christ and to him, this is where, let's say, the day is won. The miracle is had. Luther actually takes the the focus off of himself and immediately fixates it on the work of the word in the hearts of people. Luther does not focus on himself and his, let's say, meager resources. Rather, he focuses on God and his vast abundance to deal with what he has been given. I think that's one example of this at work in the history of the church. And there's other examples in the history of the church, one of which we'll look to in a moment, but uh, the first thing to note is that this is not something that is new in the advent of Jesus and the teaching of the disciples. When Israel is facing the assailment of the Babylonian Empire and the Assyrians before them, Isaiah tells us a great many things that have happened to Israel. They're weak, they're apostate, they're against God, they're broken, they're a people that doesn't even know God anymore. And it's in this context that uh, the Babylonian envoys come before the king, King Hezekiah, and they essentially critique him, warn him, and say something to the effect of, if you have 2,000 people who you can put horses on, we'll give you 2,000 horses and chariots, and then we'll fight you. They know how weak King Hezekiah and Israel is. And King Hezekiah uh, takes this message, uh, this threat from the vastly superior armies of the opposition. He takes it and he doesn't meet with his generals and scheme, how do we put this together? How do we solve the problem? He doesn't go to Egypt and try to buy people who can fight on their behalf. King Hezekiah, we're told, goes before God and he lays out the message of the ambassadors and he prays to God and says, Essentially, Lord, they're right in almost every respect. We are weak. We don't have men. We don't have weapons. We have really not much. But Lord, you are God. And the king of the Babylonians is not God. The gods of these other nations and the idols that they burned, those were false gods. You are the one true God. Would you please help us in this moment? And we're told that God dispatches an angel and kills 185,000 of the army. 
and that Sennacherib and his forces have to just simply retreat back to where they came from. Now, that's not because Hezekiah goes before God and, and boasts about how weak Israel is. He's lamenting how weak Israel is. That's not because that Israel actually had a great army that they had. They just needed to really get the moral camaraderie together, and then they could face off against the Babylonians. This is Israel confessing that they are insufficient for the task apart from their God who can deliver them. And so they go to God, and God provides the deliverance. And then we see here in the New Testament the disciples presenting a problem to Jesus, and Jesus is the solution to the problem. Luke is couching this in a context where we need to pick up that Jesus is being correlated with God as the solution and the source of the blessing, which doesn't make sense in any other way. He's making an argument that, that while God in the Old Testament was the abundant one, yes, and Jesus is that God. He is that abundant source of blessing. Now again, I mentioned that this message for the church is a relevant one. And I think it's most relevant for us when we consider how much is left to be done for the sake of the gospel for people that really need it. We can look out at the world, which is in great need of the gospel being preached to them, but the world has many needs before it. The world needs food, it needs peace, it needs medicine. There are places in the world that have no access to running water or clean water. The world has so many needs and the church is actually uh, told to go out and to make disciples and to baptize them and to teach God's word. Now, how can we do this if the world has so many other needs before it? Who is sufficient to do that kind of thing? It would be a fool's errand to say, well, if the church correlated its resources correctly and we trained people properly and we sent out enough humanitarian effort, we could change the shape of the world in order to be the kind of world that God would have it be. As if our resources and our skills and our qualifications would be enough to meet those needs. If you even think about your own community and your own workplace and the people that you know who are, let's say, far from the Lord or maybe skeptical of him, and we say, given the amount of unbelief and maybe the amount of hurt and the amount of pain that most people experience in this life, how am I sufficient to go to these people and to persuade them that God is actually the solution to their problems? How can I go to people who are hurting and tell them that this Jesus and this God is actually the answer that they need? Am I really sufficient to do that kind of a thing? And this is, I think, a good question for us to ask. Because it is, I think if we're honest, uh, a mountain that we are really inadequate to surmount. It's the kind of thing that should, I think, keep you up at night. The kind of thing that you should, let's say, fixate on and worry about. If you are a Christian, thinking about how you actually engage with unbelievers in the world and persuade them of God's goodness in a world that is so hurting and so broken, how do we persuade a lost world of the things of God? Isn't he just for a bygone age and a bygone era? How do we persuade them of such things? Well, therein, I think we can draw the encouragement from the history of the church. Because we have other saints who face the same kinds of problems and they've had solutions for these problems. One of them is one of my favorites. His name is George Mueller. He has many uh, things that he has done in his lifetime. I want to focus just on one account that he had. One of the things that George Mueller would do is he would serve orphans. 
people who had no homes, no families. And if you were an orphan in George Mueller's day, it wasn't as though there was a vast social support network where you could go to the government and be fed and be clothed and be sheltered. If you were an orphan, you were begging for your life and you were essentially thrown to the wolves of the world and uh, whatever happened to you, happened to you. It's in George Mueller's day, he launches an orphanage and he doesn't only accept Christians into this orphanage and people who, let's say, would profess faith. He accepts anyone and everyone into the orphanage. And it's to these children, these orphans, that he consistently witnesses to them, teaches them of the gospel, and meets their felt needs. And in his journals, he records what these interactions are like. And of one of the children, or a group of the children that he admits into this orphanage, he writes these words. In November of 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without one single intermission, whether in sickness or in health, on the land or on the sea, and whatever the pressures of my engagements might be. 18 months elapsed before the first of five was converted. I thanked God and I prayed for the others. Five years elapsed and the second was converted. I thanked God and I prayed for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them and six years more passed before the third was converted. And I thanked God for the three and I went on praying for the other two. These two remain unconverted. The man to whom God in the riches of his grace has given tens of thousands of answers to prayer in the selfsame day or hour in which these were offered has been praying day by day for nearly 60, or sorry, sorry, for nearly 36 years for the conversion of these two individuals. And yet they remain unconverted. For next November, I will be 36 years since I began to pray for their conversion. But I hope in God, and I pray on, and I yet look for the answer. Now, as an amendment from the author of this entry, he writes, of the two individuals still unconverted at the time of this sermon, one became a Christian before Mueller died, and the other only a few years after. Mueller does not think he is sufficient to teach orphans of the goodness of God by intellectual storytelling or convincing or by meeting their felt needs. He does all those things, but he does not think that his activity is sufficient for the task. So he prays day and night, ceaselessly seeking the abundant God who can provide growth, who can provide healing, who can save souls. And he beseeches God for salvation. And his whole life is aimed in that regard. If you were to read of the biography of Mueller, prayer is the, the sum and substance of his Christian walk. As a pastor, as a, the, the organizer of an orphanage, as the one who would meet so many people's felt needs, preach so many sermons, reach so many lost people. If you were to say, Are, is anyone up to the task? You might be tempted to say Mueller was up to the task. But he does not think of himself in that light. Same thing we could say about Luther. Luther, if anyone could have done the Reformation, Luther was up to the task. Luther says, no, not I, but the word of God which worked. And I think in this is where we need to find the lesson of the feeding of the 5,000. What Luke is telling us is not simply about the breaking of bread and the abundance of fish. He's telling us about a God that we can go to to provide an abundance of things that we are in great need of. In the crowd's case, it is the need of food that they have, and they have great need of the food, and Jesus is the one who can provide abundance for them. In our case, the, the thing that we are tasked by Jesus to do is to go and make disciples. 
Notice the command. Jesus says to his disciples, his apostles, you go feed them. And when they confess that they have no resources, no ability to, then he provides the, the meal. And similarly, right before he ascends, the disciples ask Jesus, Lord, is now the time in which you will bring about the kingdom or is it in the future? And Jesus uh, commissions them and he says, go, you make disciples. And it would be a false conclusion for the disciples to say, well, he's commissioned us to do it. We are sufficient for the task. Rather, what the disciples conclude is we need to pray and preach the word. We need to day and night be before the throne of God, asking and praying for the abundance of disciples that he's told us to go about and get. Because are we really sufficient for the task that we've been given? The right response would be, absolutely not. And that hasn't changed in 2,000 years. With additional medicine, better ways to communicate the gospel, the ability to translate the Bible into so many languages, pragmatic solutions, as good as they are and as much as they need to, to happen and to take place, these are not the source that will deal with the problem that people have. The solution is still the same as it has always been. We need to go to the abundant God to ask for him to bring about the thing that only he can bring about and to recognize that without him, without his work to do that, we are truly out of our depth. This is the uh, conclusion or the confession that we must all make. Now, the other piece of this that I think is very significant is the fact that you and I serve a God who is abundant. And he does not uh, need really us in any way. And if you're thinking about your life, your qualifications, your skill set, the things you bring to the table to disciple, to evangelize, to start any kind of thing that would be felt and significant in this world, one of the frictions we face is, well, I'm not qualified, but maybe if someone had enough skills or enough resources or enough uh, intellect, they could do that kind of thing, but certainly not me. And don't be surprised by God being pleased to use people who have the least amount of qualification to do his task, to do his bidding. When Moses uh, comes to God uh, in the burning bush, the conclusion of that account is he goes to God and he says, I, I can't speak, I can't go before Pharaoh. You need someone who can debate with Pharaoh and debate with his wise men, and this would be the person to lead Israel free. And God says, you're going, Moses, you're going. Despite your speech impediment, despite your great cowardice, you are going. And it's in this that Moses is used mightily as a servant of God. And I think that is where we all need to get, to recognize that we are not sufficient for the task, but if we go to Christ, he is sufficient. And not only sufficient for the needs of the world, but sufficient for our needs as well. To soothe our sickness, to deal with our sin, to heal us, to resurrect us on the last day. Was his death not sufficient for all these things, to bring about life eternal for his beloved? Let's pray. Father, we are ever thankful for you and for your word. Lord, it challenges us. It weakens us. You make us to see who we really are, Lord. Not people who are mighty, but people who are weak. We are not uh, people who are able to rejoice or who are able to boast in much that we can offer. But Lord, we thank you that in our weakness is where you are most pleased to demonstrate your strength. And Lord, would you strike our hearts and cause us to see in all of the ways in which we might still be self-sufficient.
and stubbornly so. And Lord, help us to give up our own self-reliance. As a church, would you please help us to give up our own self-reliance? And would you put within us a great, growing, and unquenchable sense of inadequacy that will drive us ever more to prayer and before the throne so that we may ask of the only one who can abundantly provide all that we need. Lord, we ask and we pray these things in your name. Amen.